KJ, what's coming? Double homicide, one male, one female. Killer's male, white, 40. Set up a perimeter and tell them we're on route. I'm placing you under arrest for the future murder of Sarah Marks. Give the man his hand. The future can be seen. I'm Melanie Peters for N Equals One, a podcast about science and discovery at UC San Diego. And I'm Heather Bushman. In each episode, we bring you the story of one project, one discovery, or one scientist. Today on N Equals One, we're talking about one of our favorite topics, personalized medicine. Wait, wasn't that Tom Cruise just now? Yeah, that's him as chief of pre-crime John Anderton in the 2002 movie Minority Report. Aha, uh-huh, yeah, I love that movie. <laughs> Mutated humans called precogs pre-visualize crime via visions of the future. The precogs predict where and when something bad is going to happen, and it's Cruz's character's job to make sure it doesn't. <laughs> but, um, you know, what does that have to do with science or personalized medicine? Uh, yeah, totally far-fetched, right? or maybe not, at least in one sense. We actually have researchers here who are trying to come up with a sort of minority report-like approach to cancer. And by that I mean they're looking for genetic clues to know as much about your future cancer as possible, pre-visualizing a tumor, including things like its type, location, behavior, and therapeutic targets long before you actually get it. Cool. So here's one of those precog cancer researchers. My name is Hannah Carter. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at UCSD. Dr. Carter is a computational biologist. She and her team use computer modeling and machine learning to determine how gene mutations lead to changes in cell behavior that in turn lead to cancer. You mean like the BRCA mutations, which are well known to greatly increase a woman's risk of breast and other cancers? Yes, that's one example, but That's the obvious one because the mutation popped right out to researchers because it has what's known as high penetrance, meaning that if you have the mutation, you're almost certain to get the disease. But there are lots of other less common mutations that increase cancer risk for fewer people and only by a bit. And do these mutations always lead to cancer? Here's Dr. Carter. So they were um, sequencing multiple tumors and identifying all of these mutations that were in the the tumor genomes. And uh, there was sort of a new problem that was emerging, that is we were finding a lot of mutations and it was clear that most of those mutations probably weren't important for cancer for understanding what biological processes are are, um, behaving improperly in cancer. Uh, so, so this new problem emerged, which was trying to understand which mutations are drivers and which are what we call passengers. So just because you have a genetic mutation doesn't always mean it's bad? Correct. I think that's a common misconception because, of course, a mutation automatically sounds like a bad thing. Right. Wrong. It sounds wrong. Yes. It's, it's bad. <laughs> but, <laughs> but mutations happen all the time as our cells are dividing and replicating. And and even though a mutation may be associated with cancer, meaning you see it more often in cancer cells than other cells, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that mutation is causing the cancer. So it, it's a chicken or the egg sort of thing, right? So okay. say you, there's a mutation commonly seen in cancer. 
it could be the result of other things going wrong in the cell, not necessarily a cause of the cancer. Okay. Really to be able to understand um, the disease process and how we can intervene in it to either prevent or um, treat tumors, we really need to be able to understand which mutations are causing the disease and which ones are, are sort of, um, I guess, fake outs or, or dummies, right? Well, I mean, that sounds like a good idea. Otherwise, researchers are going to find themselves going down a rabbit hole. For sure. Now, now genes encode proteins. And just because some protein is overactive or underactive in a tumor, it doesn't mean that developing a drug that specifically targets that protein and dampens it or reactivates it is going to have any effect on the cancer. And scientists need to know that before they waste millions or billions of dollars on a drug that targets a passenger mutation rather than a driver. So how can Dr. Carter and her team pre-visualize cancer? I started looking at drivers versus passengers, but subsequently, um, just because cancer is a really difficult disease uh, to, to treat, and because um, sort of genomic diversity in the tumor is really your enemy, um, the, the, one of the lessons I've learned over time is it's really, really important to think about ways to try to detect this disease at early stages and prevent it. There, there's always going to be people walking into the clinic with cancer that need these therapies. For We're sure. always going to need to identify mutations that are causing their disease and think about ways to treat them. And so we were definitely working on that problem. But over time, we've become interested also in trying to identify people who might be at risk of developing tumors so that we can monitor them better and hopefully catch their disease early enough that it can be surgically remo uh, removed or prevented. How good are we at doing that so far? Identifying people at highest risk of cancer super early? Not very. Now, there are some really famous genes and mutations that we really know are associated with cancer risk. And, you know, for example, BRCA mutations. Right. And a lot of times there's uh, people consider prophylactic surgery to, to prevent um, cancer in those situations. But it turns out that there's only a small number of these what we call rare high penetrance mutations in DNA damage repair pathways that predispose to cancer. Um, we know, however, from studies of, of cancer cohorts, um, only a small fraction of cancers are explained by these rare disease, uh, rare high penetrance mutations and these cancer syndromes that are associated with them. Um, but we still see, like even in, in sporadic random cancers, that there's a familial component. You know, you're more likely to get a tumor if multiple relatives in your family have a tumor, even if we can't identify one of these rare high penetrance mutations. So how can they spot these less obvious cancer-causing mutations? That's where things get interesting. So we hear all the time about tumor profiling, where right. researchers and clinicians can study the genetic and molecular profile specific to a person's own tumor. Is that like our molecular tumor right, board? Right, right. So at Moore's okay. Cancer Center here at UC San Diego Health, we have a molecular tumor board that does that and looks at someone's specific tumor and all its various characteristics, and, mm -hmm. and that's what we talk about when we talk about personalized cancer medicine all the time. And that can provide a lot of information these days about how best to treat that particular tumor. But the person still has cancer. Dr. Carter wants to know all of that information before there even is a tumor to look at. Oh, well, how can she do that? Well, you can think of it like 
we have two different genomes. One is what's known as our germline genome, that's the one you're born with, and the other is your tumor genome, which is just the genetics you would find inside your cancer cells with all its associated mutations. So it's sort of like you've got a background genome and a tumor genome if you have cancer. Oh, so, okay, so if you have cancer, Yes. You have a tumor genome, right? but not everybody is born with these two genomes. Right, right, right. Okay. So you're born with the one that you know determines your eye color, blah, blah, blah. That's your germline mm -hmm. genome. So what Dr. Carter is doing is looking for patterns in that germline genome, which you have from birth, that okay. could provide clues to your cancer if you get it. Ah. And so um, one of the things we've started looking into is can we tie any common variation to characteristics of the tumors in an individual? So when we have information about their inherited genome and their tumor, um, we, can, we can correlate those two and try to understand if there's anything in their inherited genome that dictated where the tumor showed up or what kind of mutations showed up in the tumor. So they're looking for rare patterns across a ton of data. It must be like looking for a needle in a haystack. I'm guessing they need a lot of patient genetic information to do it and info on both inherited germline genome, the one that we're born with, mm -hmm. and tumor genome for each person. Exactly. So it's, it's difficult because everyone's genome and tumor genome are different. Dr. Carter and team rely on what's known as the Cancer Genome Atlas, or TCGA. That's a database of cancer genetic information provided by the National Institutes of Health. And the genome is a big place. So while looking at all of that data, Dr. Carter first wanted to narrow down their search. So we thought about what would the, the biggest pressure your inherited genome could put on tumor evolution be. And we decided it was probably the immune system. Mm -hmm. And so we started looking at um, people's variation in, in these immune receptors that are responsible for um, displaying the, the sort of the inside contents of the cell on the surface for the immune system to come and check that the cell is, is healthy. Okay, let's see if I've got this straight. <laughs> there are receptors on our cell surfaces that hold out antigens, bits of just about everything from inside the cells, mm -hmm. and display them to T cells, immune cells that are constantly checking for infected or damaged cells. If T cells spot a receptor with self-antigens, they leave the cell alone. But if they spot foreign antigens, like those from bacteria or viruses, or mutated self-antigens, they kill the cell before the damage spreads. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's right. So, and we don't all have the same receptors. They're called major histocompatibility complex class one receptors, or MHC1 for short. So there's a lot of genetic variation there. And that means everyone shows their immune system a different variety of things happening inside their cells. I get how that would be useful for helping your immune system detect infections, but what does MHC1 have to do with cancer? Here's Dr. Carter. If a tumor mutation makes its way onto the cell surface, there's a chance that the immune system will say, oh, hey, there's a problem and, and kill that cancer cell. So what she and her team are doing is using the TCGA database of thousands of patients and giving each person a score for the likelihood a particular mutation will wind up on a cell surface where a T cell can see it. 
They focus on mutations that occur early in cancer development and so are more likely to be the driver mutations. And they found... So um, when we looked at the relationship between the, the scores of those mutations on each individual's um, immune background, uh, we found that they were uh, individuals were less likely to actually develop those particular mutations if their immune system could effectively right. display it on the yeah. cell surface. So some immune systems, MHC1 receptors, are better at detecting and displaying cancer antigens and thus clearing an early cancer away before it really gets underway. But what if some people have immune systems that are not so good at detecting and presenting early cancer markers, genetically speaking? Does that mean they are more likely to get cancer? Exactly. Here's Dr. Carter again. The idea is that if your immune system has uh, a big blind spot for all these cancer-causing mutations, then uh, you know developing tumors should be able to escape notice and are more likely to, to result in successful tumors. Right. So the idea is that if we could look at a person's germline genome at birth, which includes the genes that encode their MHC1 receptors, we might be able to predict their likelihood of developing cancer at some point later in life? Well, of course, more work is always needed, but that's exactly what Dr. Carter and colleagues are trying to get at. That it remains to be determined whether it's going to dictate earlier onset or um, a particular tumor site, but with more data, we'll be able to nail that down. If it does link to that, then we can use that information to identify people who are at higher risk for developing specific types of tumors or are more likely to, deter um, to develop cancer earlier in life and therefore should be screened. Um, in the meantime, if, if what we find is it only dictates the probability of specific mutations, those mutations still provide information about the aggressiveness of the, the tumor and possibly even um, its therapeutic vulnerabilities. So we could potentially plan for how to treat the patient based on their um, immune system. Yeah, so I guess once you see they have a, a, a tumor, that information could still be important. The information encoded in their immune system could still be important for sort of projecting where that tumor is going to go and how to maybe preempt it. Wow, that is so cool. Precogs for cancer. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> totally. Now, one other cool thing before we sign off. I really enjoyed meeting Dr. Carter. She's only just recently transitioned from her postdoc to becoming a new junior, junior faculty member, running her own lab. And she has an interesting background. She actually first trained to be an electrical engineer <laughs> before going back to get her PhD and falling in love with molecular biology. Wow, that's interesting. Does that come in handy in studying cancer and genomics? Well, I thought there'd be parallels between electrical engineering and thinking about how molecular circuits operate in a cell. But here's how Dr. Carter sees it. I would say that some of the most useful things from, from my engineering background, other than just problem solving, right, <laughs> right are um, so information theory, thinking about how information is encoded and transmitted within a system, uh, thinking about signal to noise ratios, which certainly apply to uh, biological environments, and also machine learning, um, being able to automate recognition of, of higher order patterns in large biological data sets where no human could find the combination in this high dimensional space that would successfully um, separate you know two groups of interest but but instead um, you can train a machine to do that.
the other aspect of it, it does require some thought in terms of how you're going to encode the information that you're providing to the machine learning tool, mm -hmm. right? And if, um, if you provide the relevant information, it's going to perform well, but if the features you give it aren't informative of the, for the biological problem, you're not going to get much out. Mm -hmm. So there's still jobs for people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We're only just getting started. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to follow Dr. Carter's career since she's just getting started. I think she's going to do a lot of interesting things here. Yeah. That's it for this episode of N equals 1. I'm Melanie. And I'm Heather. Thanks for joining us.